If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. If you're new with us, here's what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and you've uh, caught us in a study going through the book of Acts. We will be uh, covering Acts 4, verses 1 through 22 this morning. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen behind me as we, we walk through this, this passage. Expectations. They're kind of funny, right? Uh, so last month, uh, I turned 34, right? I know, not a day over 15, I look. Um, so I turned 34 last month, and one of the, the things I've realized as I've lived this long life of mine um, is that typically, when my expectations are in line with reality, things typically go better for me, right? Typically, I, I end up on the other side uh, happier or more pleased. Anybody else been there, right? Where if the expectations kind of are more set a little bit lower, let's be honest, or more in reality. And listen, I'm not against high expectations. I love them. But what happens oftentimes when we set those expectations in unrealistic things, and, and we can look at so many areas in our lives where, where this happens, right? Before we're married, right? We have these expectations of what a relationship or what a marriage is supposed to be and what it's about, and then what happens, right? We, we get married, right? And sometimes those expectations don't line up with what we entered in the marriage with, right? Those expectations that we put on them unjustly or unfairly and, and frank, unwisely, right? We're expecting something out of our spouse or out of a relationship that God never intended. And so yet we, we put those expectations or, or yeah, say we, we get married and those expectations there are met. Okay, I know what's next, right? I know what will solve that, right? Class, what is it? Kids, right, because kids solve everything, right? <laughs> Just have kids. It'll solve all the problems, right? And you're laughing because most of you who are laughing have kids, right? And kids, they're, they're a great joy, and, and one kid, if it doesn't solve it, have more kids, right? And so then you have a second kid, a third kid, and some of you go up to six, seven, eight, nine. You are nuts, right? <laughs> They'll fix everything. And again, there are great joys with kids, but we also know for those of us who have kids and those of us who are kids, right, um, that there are those great joys, but there's also great pain. It's great labor, right? You know, for us who have maybe little kids, there's this physical taxing labor that takes place when you don't sleep but 45 minutes a night. Or as the kids get older, it moves from less physical and more emotional. And these tensions and these strains and oftentimes our expectations aren't panning out. And so what happens in your life, think about this, when expectations aren't met? or they don't pan out like you thought they would in any area. Maybe for you it's career, right? Coming out of college or coming out of high school or whatever it may be. I thought, listen, at 35 or 40, I'd, I'd be here doing this or that. What happens? You see, on the low end, there's just disappointment, right? I wanted this or that to do more than it is. On the extreme end, I need a new spouse, right? There's this shift and this jerk and this change, right? I need a whole new career. I need, I, I need a new job. I need new kids, right? Just kidding. Um, I need a new church. And we just pacify our angst by movement. 
to something new or something different and not really getting to the root of our unsettledness. Not really getting to the root of why we feel that angst over unmet expectations. You see, I bring this up because there are these expectations that I believe we as Christians, and particularly even in our American or Western Christianity, we put some expectations on God. God, you're supposed to keep me from not having my expectations not met. You're supposed to keep me from, right, pain. You're supposed to keep me from suffering, right? With God and Christianity, it's all roses and cupcakes, right? There's this theology, and this is more global than even just here in America, that, that God is to make us healthy, wealthy, and happy. That with God, if we're with him, then it's just this utopian life, right? We want our best life now. The problem is, the problem with that is this, the word of God. The problem with that expectation of God is that it's not what God says about himself toward us. The problem with that thought is Jesus himself and what he says to his followers. See, hear me. There are these incredible realities that the Bible speaks about toward us as believers. Right? John 10.10. I came so that you could have life and life to the full, or some of your translations, this abundant life, right? Praise God. Jesus came so that we might have life, that forgiveness is found through faith and repentance in him, that we might experience the joy that comes from new life. Like Those are incredible realities that the word of God is so clear toward us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. However, Jesus goes on to say, listen, in this life, you're going to face troubles. You can expect them if you're following me, these trials, these tribulations. James, right? The half-brother of Jesus says, listen, when trials... And temptations come. When the waves of life crash against you, listen. It's God who is creating in you something that can only come from them. So why would the God of the Bible who wants to create in us those things that James talks about there, why would he keep us from those? You see, his promise in those moments is not that he removes us from them, but that he goes with us through them. That is the expectation. That is what the word of God says to us. Now, why am I setting Acts chapter 4 up like this? Well, if you only knew the first three chapters that we've walked through, here's what you're hearing and seeing, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there after the resurrection with his disciples, okay? He's there, and he's giving them the mission statement. He's giving them Acts 1.8, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Like, they're getting that straight from the mouth of Jesus. Like, this is like, whoa, you know? And then here, this is, this is the hardest part in Acts up to this point. Jesus leaves, he ascends, okay? That's the hardest part up to this point in Acts, which, again, is a bummer, but the reality is he has to ascend because that means he's coming back. He has to ascend because that means he's going to sit at the right hand of the Father in the seat of authority and do exactly what he said he was going to do, right? He has to ascend so that the Holy Spirit can come. And so then you go into Acts 2, which we went into Acts chapter 2, and what happens? They're praying in the upper room, and guess what? Jesus' words come to pass, and the Holy Spirit falls, right? And there's this incredible moment where the church begins and it's formalized and Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon in front of thousands and thousands of people explaining what just took place and he preaches the gospel. And guess what? 3,000 folks come to faith. It's awesome, right? 
This is great. Right? And then go, go on to Acts chapter 3. It keeps getting better, right? There's this man outside of the temple who has never in his life walked. John and Peter walk up to him and say, listen, silver and gold money, we, we don't have to give you alms. But what we have is far greater than that. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy gets up and he walks and he leaps into the temple, right? And it's this incredible scene. And then Peter, again, to explain this sign or this miracle, gets up and preaches the gospel, right, from Solomon's porch. And that's where we're at today, right? From Solomon's porch, he preaches the gospel. And, and people come to faith again. Now, pause. Stop right there. Like, who wouldn't want to be part of that? Who wouldn't want to be part of what I just described there in the early church? Who wouldn't want to be part and just going, listen, that is the, listen, that's it. I want to be part of that stuff. And so if you just read Acts chapters 1 through chapter 3, the expectation is this, that there's no trouble, that it is that utopian, that there is no persecution, there is no trial, there is no, no hardships, right, in this life. We're seeing Jesus give the mission, we're seeing him ascend, we're seeing the power of the Holy Spirit fall on people, they're encouraged, they're healed physically and spiritually, right? Peter preaches and everyone responds to his sermons. I mean, this is a miracle after miracle after miracle. And then we get to Acts chapter 4. We get to Acts chapter 4 and reality hits. Reality of what Jesus described in his earthly ministry that would come to the church, that would come to the disciples, that would come for us and to us even to this day, if we're actually disciples, if we're actually following the Jesus of the Bible. And so the question I want us to wrestle through today is this. What are the expectations we as a church, we as the people of God can expect in the culture in which we find ourselves. What are the expectations we can expect as the church and as the people of God in the culture we find ourselves in? Because it's no different than the first century church. What are some of the realities that are true when we stand for Christ and with Christ? And then how do we respond? And so let's read the first four verses. And this is in the context of Peter still preaching, by the way. He's still standing on Solomon's porch, giving this message of the gospel. And here's what happens. And I gave you a little sneak peek last week. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, so here's the scene. Peter is still preaching. Alongside of him is John and also the healed man, this man who was just healed. All right, they're all there. And Peter is proclaiming the gospel. We walked through this sermon last week, who Jesus is, very clearly. And here comes the police of the temple, if you will, the, the, the chief, right? The, the police chief of the temple. He comes and goes, listen, the Sadducees have said, I'm to arrest you. I'm arresting you. So they, they, they arrest Peter, John, and most scholars believe they take the formerly the ex-crippled man with them to prison, to jail, all right? because they can't hold the council because it's already evening, all right? So they take them away while they're preaching the gospel, all right? 
So here's what I want us to see. This is the first point in Acts that we see persecution of the church. What is the issue here? In verses 1 through 4, what is the real issue? As you heard it, what did you hear the issue to be? Right? Remember, it's coming on the heels of a man being healed. The issue for the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were this, this uh, theologically liberal group who, by and large, they were marked by, by being in political power, right? Not, they're, they're not theologians. They're, they're not necessarily uh, like the Pharisees, if you will. They're more political power, all right? But it was kind of so meshed that they had power in all arenas, okay? And so they were upset. They were annoyed, Acts tells us, by the preaching of Jesus and his resurrection, so the real issue that's being faced here and why they just were apprehended and drug away to prison is because they were preaching, Peter was preaching Jesus and that he has resurrected from the dead and is alive. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. We're going to see a little bit later in the text some more reason that they were greatly annoyed. But here, the primary reason is because of what they were talking about. And here's what I want us to see. That religion is always threatened, or, or religion, religiosity, power, worldly power, is always going to be in tension with the gospel. Peter was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, they wanted earthly, cultural power, religiosity, and it is this tension, and they say, listen, apprehend them, arrest them. What we can expect as the people of God, as the church, is this, that an unbelieving world will see biblical doctrine, the gospel, as threatening, as dangerous. That is exactly what the Sadducees are indicting them on. They're not indicting them that they healed a man. They are indicting them that they are preaching the gospel, that Jesus Christ is alive and he has resurrected from the dead. And they believe it's threatening to their power, right? Because a crowd is gathering, a crowd is responding. But listen, this is the same thing that we face. We face in a world, listen, the world that we swim in, the culture that we swim in, is not a believing culture, meaning it is a, not a gospel culture. Jesus says this. The word of God says this. We're in a foreign land. We're exiles. It's an unbelieving land. Well, how can we expect to be treated? Well, when we stand for biblical doctrine, we can expect to be met with conflict because an unbelieving world will find it as threatening. Threatening to what? Freedom. Whatever that is, right? Threatening to, to happiness, right? Self-expression, right? It suppresses self. See, lest we forget again that a man has just been miraculously healed, they say, yeah, 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 good, good, good. But where we have issue is what they're proclaiming. Where we have issue is that they're talking about Jesus being the Messiah, they're talking about the resurrection. So listen, our expectation as a church and as believers in an unbelieving culture, in an unbelieving world, being foreigners in that world, is that we will face conflict. We will face persecution. You say, well, I never face that. I never see that. We're going to talk about why in just a second. But there will be a conflict when the gospel goes forth, just like Peter was exposed. But look at verse 4. But many, look at what it says, but many of those who had heard the word did what? Believed. And not just a handful, but it says that the number of Christians in that church rose to 5,000. So get the, check this out, check, think about the scene. 
the chief, right, the handler, the police comes up and goes, listen, Peter, John, and you, right, come, come with us, come with And Peter is going, listen, believe. Believe in the gospel that I just proclaimed to you. And people actually go, yeah. As they drag Peter out, right, he's going, listen, believe in Jesus. Right, who cares what they do to us? Believe in the one who I just, just preached about. People are going, 2,000 people are going, yeah, I'm with that guy. No, 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 let's just talk for a second because some of you are like, yeah. Really? Like, if, if that occurred, let's just use me as an example, a, a, a church that you're in, right? A person is faithfully preaching the gospel, an authority comes and drags them out. Are you going to go, I'm believing? Yeah, somebody like, yeah, yeah. No, no, listen, like, really? Are you going to go, wait, 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 the gospel he's just proclaiming or she's just proclaiming is ending them up in handcuffs and drag out the door? I'm going to give it a little time, I'm going to be honest with you, right? I'm going to give it a little time to wait and see if that's actually true or not true. Listen, that's not what happened here. The Spirit of God was moving, not because of Peter's sermon, but because the Spirit of God was drawing men and women to himself. And it was like, listen, yes, we're on board. Listen, if he is committed enough to go to prison and possibly die over this message, listen, yeah, we're on. And 2,000 people, listen, these authorities who wanted to stop it actually poured kerosene on it. And here's what happens with Christianity. When it's pressed, when it's pushed, when it's persecuted, when it's threatened by the unbelieving world, it actually grows stronger. So do we fear that? No. We say, come with men. Because we know the gospel goes forth more greatly in times of persecution than any other soil possible. We see that right here with Peter and John. And so then what is our response, right? How is the church to respond in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what she believes and embraces? Like, how are we to respond? How are you to respond, right? In your workplace, in your school, in, in your sphere where you run, how are you to respond? Because listen, I don't think any of us are going, listen, sign me up for persecution. Drag me to prison, right? We're not, we're not asking for that, Right? When we shouldn't, by the way, you should know that. We're not asking for that. But how do we live in an environment like what's being described here at the beginning of Acts 4? Well, I, I think Acts 4, by the way, is one of the most inspiring and instructive passages in all of Acts. Let's look at it. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And those names should ring a bell from the trial of Jesus, by the way. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So here we get another, another reason they're, they're kind of running scared and why they would arrest Peter and John, right? They're going, what power did you do this? Power. They want the power. The power rests with us. The power has to be with the Sadducees. So they're asking them, something happened, and what power was it? And then verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, his, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you thought Peter was going to back down from his sermon, (laughs) he turned it up. He turned it up. And listen, I want you to get this scene. This scene in front of the Sadducees, and this is a picture from the, actually in the second temple, what this would have looked like. Like this is an elevated platform where these, these, these guys would have sat. And Peter and John and probably the ex-crippled man would have been brought to the center of kind of this half horseshoe looking thing, all right? So they're in the midst, if you will, like, like what Acts is here. They're in the midst there to give testimony, and it's meant really to intimidate them. And how do they respond? How do they respond in the fact that these men have the power to take their lives? How do they respond? How do they respond to what we just read? And the first thing is this. It's the same way we respond in our culture. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. If we have any hope of standing for the gospel in our culture, if we have any hope of faithfully being witnesses for Jesus Christ, we must have what verse 8 describes. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, apart from the Holy Spirit, him filling us, we have no Christian ministry and no witness at all. I know that's an extreme statement, but it is true, right? All Christian ministry and witness depends on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pretty big deal, right? Pretty big deal. Well, the question then you should be asking is, how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? How are we as individuals and as a church filled with the Holy Spirit? You see, Paul talks in his letters. He says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear me. Hear me. Christian, at salvation... At the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have all of the Holy Spirit, okay? Hear me, God the Holy Spirit, you have, you have all of him in your life. It's not like God holds back or reserves 65% to know, okay, I'm going to disperse this other to you. No, you have all of him. So what does it look like then with us who have all of the Holy Spirit to continually to be filled by him? Here's what it means. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to excavate or to remove ourselves from the center of our lives so that the Holy Spirit can control us. So our part or our labor is actually removing ourselves from the orientation or the center of our lives. And the Holy Spirit in turn fills us with more of his presence. That's why Paul in his letters, he said, listen, don't be drunk with wine Instead, be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. So there's this idea that he uses alcohol here that something else controls you, right? And so when that goes away, when you controlling you goes away, the Holy Spirit can actually move in and fill you and control you. Listen, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that God does in us. Right? Like we we can't manufacture filling of the Holy Spirit, right? What we do, our part in receiving the filling of the Holy Spirit, or that he might fill us more and more, is that we get, as Sam said during worship, we get in these postures, these postures or these places where God can move in our lives, thus filling us more and more with his Holy Spirit and less and less of us. Think about it. We won't even leave the book of Acts. 
How, and you'll see throughout the book of Acts, it'll say that, that Stephen, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. How did these men and women position themselves or posture themselves to be full of the Holy Spirit? Think about it. We don't even have to leave the first three chapters. They were in prayer, right? In the upper room, they were seeking, God asking for what? The Spirit. They were in community, Acts chapter 2, right? 42, that, that famous, they, they, were, they were in relationship and proximity with one another, with the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, right? All of these things put us in postures and places for the Holy Spirit to fill us. They were sharing their faith, right? They were witnessing to the power of Jesus Christ. They were repenting, Right? This wasn't just something that Peter was asking from the audience. This was something they were doing as well. Listen, all of those things, prayer, the apostles' teaching, community, church, the corporate gathering, right? breaking of bread both in communion and amongst tables, right? they're positioning us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you in those kind of postures and positions? Right? Like, we'll sing songs. I just want to be where you are. right? I'm one of those people Sam was talking about that can't sing, right? Like, I just want to be where you are. Well, today, right, on Sunday, in a church service, but what about tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday, Wednesday? Right? I just want to be where you are. Well, you come to the corporate gathering once every four weeks. Do you really want to be where he is? You don't pick up your Bible until one of us come up on stage and say, hey, turn to Acts chapter 4. You don't think about God. Do you really want to be where he is? Listen, it's where he is is where you'll posture and position yourself for him to fill you with his spirit. That's where you'll see. And listen, we have no chance in culture and society apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Second thing. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, go to verse 10. He says this, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing. This Jesus, and he goes on to say, he was the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He goes back to the Old Testament to point to that fact. And he says in verse 12, get this. And this is, this, listen, this is dicey in any culture, in any society, at any point in time. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Peter goes, listen, you want to know where salvation is found alone? Jesus Christ. Peter just went to the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. This is what we have to see. We must proclaim the gospel alone. We must proclaim the gospel alone. Check it out. No one is getting upset that a man who was lame is walking. Like that's not mentioned again. Bring it closer to home. Like, no one is upset or offended by us serving a warm meal after service today at the Salvation Army. No one's up in arms that we're doing a Thanksgiving meal, right? No one's up in arms that we went to Caldwell Elementary to renovate and to paint. Right? No, no, no one's up in arms to provide free health care through Hope Clinic in our community. And listen, to all those things, we say yes and amen. However, where the conflict and the tension happen is when we begin to talk about what I said at the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ alone. That when we go, listen, we have to stand and count some losses when we go, listen, we're a ministry first at our clinic and medical second. 
That our hope, our greatest hope, yes, we bear the name Hope Clinic, is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's where the tension and the conflict happens. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, goes, listen, there is one way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Listen, if we neglect people's greatest need to simply engage their felt needs, it does nothing in the long term to change their hearts, to change their situation, or even, I would argue, the world around them. People, even in churches, go, listen, let's just let what we do preach the gospel. Well, you have half of it. But listen, we need to be a people in our unbelieving culture and society that are well-versed in proclaiming the beauty of the gospel so that it actually confronts people like it confronted you and me where we were. That it actually confronts us and says, listen, you're broken. Kyle, you don't need reforming. You don't just need a warm meal. You don't just need a fix here or there. You need saving, and it comes through Jesus Christ alone. That's where the rub begins to take place. That's where the conflict will begin to take place in all our spheres of influence. When you start speaking the truth of the gospel to situations and people, you will begin to feel the conflict. And some of you earlier are like, I don't feel any tension. I don't feel any conflict. It's because you are not proclaiming the gospel of the Bible. You are proclaiming a palatable version of Jesus that you think will be swallowed by the mass consumption of society. God help us. Help me. Listen, the moment we take the gospel out of Christianity, I'm convinced true flourishing stops. True human flourishing stops. I mean, look at this, Psalm 119, 105. I think we have that one, maybe. If not, we got it memorized. Listen, here's what it says. You don't need a screen. It says that the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That when we take the word of God, Jesus, the word of God out, guess where we've just removed that light? From our feet and from our path. That light leads to human flourishing. If that light goes away, we have no hope of leading to human flourishing. Listen, that's the weight. When we say the gospel alone, that's what we're talking about. It must be front and center because it's all we have. Third, we must be with Jesus. Church, if we have any desire to be faithful witnesses, Jesus has called us to. We must be with him. Look at it in verse 13. We'll continue quickly through this text. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They were floored. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There it is, folks. Right? And, and by the way, it wasn't like they were looking at Peter and John and like, man, these are really like, like, you know, like these guys, like just like, okay, they don't have the education. No, this, was, this meant that they were common, that they didn't have any societal standing. They were uneducated, meaning they didn't have the degrees, right? The letters in front of their name or after their name. However, what they recognized was more powerful, and it was this fact that they had been with who? Jesus. That they actually were the men who were walking and learning beside Jesus. And what they see flowing from John and Peter's life is that they are actually imitating the one in which they walked with. See, what they failed to miss, and I hope we don't miss it, is that they actually have the best education. 
They are the most educated because they were the ones shoulder to shoulder with the Messiah, learning his ways. And now the power comes because they're full of the Holy Spirit. They are imitating the way of Jesus. Listen, church, if we are going to make a dent and be a witness in this society and in our culture and in our world, we have to be with Jesus. We have to be with the one we profess. This is not just a mere head knowledge, but this is a practice of the things Jesus practiced. That we have to practice the way of Jesus in our society. And listen, that's what people will notice. I'm not saying that they're instantly going to be like, well, now I believe. But they're going to go, no, they're with this guy, Jesus. They're with this one that people talk a lot about, but they're actually, they're actually practicing the way of Jesus. They're actually bringing people into their homes that everyone else pushes out. They're actually serving the least of these. They're actually going to the lame man at the front of the temple and in the authority of Jesus, just like Jesus would have done here, they laid hands on him and go, listen, it's not in our authority, but it's in yours, Jesus. You're healed. And that's what these Sadducees, these unbelievers, these people who are hostile to the gospel, that's what they see. They go, listen, we can argue over a lot of things, but here's what we know to be true about them. They're with Jesus. There's no reason people should be listening to them. There's no standing. There's no education. But they've been with Jesus. How I hope that when people peer into this church, and what I mean by this church, I don't just mean the gathering expression. I mean the people of this faith family is that the indictment on us is that we are clearly people who have been with Jesus. We're clearly people who are trying to imitate the one we profess, right? Christian, Christ follower, literally means little Christ. Imitator of him. That's what Peter and John are doing. And here's what happens. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, right? Like, like we can't deny it. The guy who they laid hands on is healed. He's standing right there. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You hear it again? Like, we can't deny it that something powerful happened through them, that Jesus healed this man. There's no denying it. But in order that it may spread no further. So their goal is to stop the spread of Christianity, this message. He said, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Hear me. Oftentimes, the heart of unbelief is not that I don't, I don't believe. Like These Sadducees believed that Jesus was who he, did, who he was and what he said he, he was, not to the point of God, but not to the point of salvation. But they believed. The issue here is they don't want to believe. Right? Never once in this, with the lame man, the formerly lame man standing beside them, did they go, hmm, maybe we should consider the message. Maybe we should consider the claims of Christ. Maybe we should consider that Jesus is who he said he is. Maybe we should consider that the resurrection is true. That's not what they say. What they say is, how do we get them to shut up in this message, not to spread any further? And maybe for some of you, that's where you are. Like, really are in your hearts. It's not that you don't believe. 
It's that you don't want to believe, right? Because if you truly believe in the message of the gospel, what you perceive or what you believe about the gospel is that it's going to cost you far more than you're willing to pay. It's going to cost you. The loss of something is far greater than what you receive in Jesus. So you simply back away from it and go, just, I don't want to believe in that. If you're honest, that's what's happening here with the Sadducees. The proof, the apologetic, everything is before them, and they simply don't want to believe it. And they don't. However, listen to two guys who actually believe it. But Peter and John answered them. I don't know what kind of warning they got, but it probably wasn't very nice, right? It wasn't shame on you. Go stand in the corner. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, right? So he's putting a little bit of power in their hands. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Do you hear them? Judge however you want, but we're not going to be silent on what we have seen and what we've heard and what we have experienced. So here's my last point that I should have made five minutes ago. All right, I hear you. We have to fear the right authority. We have to learn to fear the right authority. They are standing in a circle of men who can kill them. Those men, you want to know who they fear? Check it out. It says, and they had further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. The powers, the Sadducees, who do they fear? People. Peter, John, who do they fear? Jesus alone. God alone. Listen, this is something we will have to wrestle with. We will have to feel the weight pulling us that if the desire for us is to be liked by people rather than to be men and women who are rooted in the gospel, whose fear and reverence is to Jesus Christ alone. We will waver at every moment of temptation and persecution and conflict if our goal is to please people. Who, what authority do you fear most? Do I fear most? The Bible is clear about the weight that we give people and those around us swaying us to a certain direction. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Do you get that? Man, that one should probably go on our mirrors in the morning, right? That the fear of man, the authority of people, if we place authority with them, it's a trap and it never works. But those who trust in the Lord or fear the Lord are safe. You see the response that people left praising God for what had happened. Only, listen, only does that occur when people, we, you and I, are full of the Spirit, people who are proclaiming the gospel alone, people who are marked by being with Jesus, and people who fear the true authority, the one who is the ultimate authority alone and not those around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word that is alive and true. Your word that reshifts my heart and my focus, that calls me to repent for my self-centeredness, for me placing my 
my fear, my reverence, my awe in the hands of other men and women and not you. God, I ask that you might help us as a community. In spite of trial and conflict, in spite of tension, that you might fill us more with your spirit. That we might be diligent to posture ourselves in those places. That you, by the power of your spirit, decrease us and increase your Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would fill this church more with the power and boldness and courage of your Holy Spirit. God, how Peter and John inspire us to stand and say, come what may, we're with Jesus. To stand on the bedrock, the foundation, to stand with the cornerstone of our salvation. God, that is easy to hear in a church service. It's easy to hear in a community of other believers. But God, I pray that you would help us as we walk from here where that reality fades, but the reality of who you are never goes away. May your voice grow louder in our ears than the voices of ourselves or those around us. For your glory, we ask all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.